In uh, 2001, a group of friends of mine went up to Brisbane, and my dad was in part of this group, and they went to uh, hang out with this group called the Waiters' Union. And the Waiters' Union uh, live in uh, the uh, west end of Brisbane, and what they like to do is they like to find uh, the people who are marginalized in their community and to bring them in and to create a space for them to have their own community. Coming back from this time up there, um, some of my friends decided that they wanted to create a similar space in their own community. And one of the things they decided to do is they said, we're going to put on a dinner and we're going to make it a community dinner. And at this dinner, everyone who wants to come will be invited. Anyone can come to this dinner. And so my friends and I, we started to go because there was free food. That was pretty exciting. I was at the time, I think about 18 years old. And, uh, and then the people who started coming were all sorts of different people who would come to this dinner. It was really exciting. There would be people there uh, who were you know, everyday workers. There were middle class people, but there were people with mental illness and there were people who were drug dealers and there were people who were disabled people and there were um, people who we had no idea who they were or what they were doing there, but they ended up there. And it was this time when all sorts of people could come together and eat together and be valued. And something that would happen at each of these meals is there would be a question that was asked, and uh, the question would be a time for each person to share. And each person would answer this question. You'd go around the table, and it could be like a really simple thing. It was like, if you had to listen to one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? Uh, and it could be something that was a really, you know, a tough question. Like, you know, what is the most significant thing that God has ever done in your life? Or something like that. And so this would give everyone a time to speak. Uh, over time, this uh, community meal, it moved and morphed and changed until eventually it ended up at my parents' house where it is still running and it's still a meal for anyone who wants to come. Um, generally, the people who go to the meal these days are mostly people with their own uh, mental illness diagnosis and my parents. And sometimes uh, I go there as well. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Like it's, That's how it's ended up. And still it's this time, though, when anyone can come and where people can be listened to. And what's interesting is that for these people, when society has decided to stop listening to them, they are heard and they are able to speak and they are cared for and they are valued in this community. Um, What's interesting to me is that over time, all the other people who used to be going to this meal have kind of petered out, but the people who keep coming are the ones uh, who find their community there and the ones who generally are ignored by the rest of society. And what we see in this parable today that Jesus is talking about what it means to be invited into God's kingdom and he's saying that the people who often end up in God's kingdom accepting God's invitations are the ones who have been overlooked by the rest of the world. The ones who have seen that they have nothing to offer, that they need to accept God's invitation because he is all they have. And when we, uh, we look at this story, some of us will identify with it. I identify with the story because I'm someone who doesn't always love going to parties. And so seeing these people who try and give a whole bunch of excuses to get out of going to the party, I'm like, that's me. I regularly say, yeah, I'll go to a party and then I hope that something will come up that will be bigger and more important than the party. So I'll just be like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come. I have bought a house or something, which never happens, funnily enough. But I need, you know, some kind of excuse, but they don't come along, so I go to the party instead. But I identify with these people. 
And when we hear this story, many of us will have heard it taught to us over the time that we've grown up in church. We've heard this parable again and again and again, and we know that the point of this story is don't reject God's invitation. And so we say, we say, we need to teach this parable and teach people, don't reject God's invitation. He's inviting you in to his kingdom. But perhaps the question that we need to ask, or perhaps the, uh, the truth that we need to hold on to for this parable is not so much the challenge of don't reject God's invitation, though that is true for us, but the challenge that he gave to the people who were listening at the time, saying don't make assumptions about whether or not you will be in God's kingdom. Because there's a bunch of people here making assumptions about where they fit in God's kingdom, and Jesus is saying, you can't do that. That's not how it works. Uh, the, the whole story begins when Jesus has gone to dinner at this Pharisee's house, and the Pharisee's there, and all his religious mates are there, and they're all sitting around having dinner, and this guy turns up um, with some abnormal swelling, and it's the Sabbath, and Jesus decides to heal this guy. And they all get a bit upset about this because healing is work on the Sabbath, so they're like, rawr, 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 and Jesus knows what they're doing, and so he tells them off for doing it, which is Jesus suddenly making it one of the most awkward dinner parties in history. And it just kind of gets worse from there. The next thing that happens, though, is he talks about how he noticed how everyone would go and sit at the best spots in at the table. They were, everyone would pick the seat of honor. They would try and sit themselves at the place where they were looks, looking most important. And so he would say to them, instead, stop doing that. You're doing it all wrong, guys. Make sure you take the places of least honor. Make sure you take the humble places so that you might be honored, not that you might be humbled. And so then they're all feeling told off by Jesus, which is no fun at all. It's like when a vegan turns up to a spit roast. That's how they're feeling. And then Jesus continues uh, to, to make them feel bad because then he says, hey, when you have a dinner party, don't invite all the people who are the rich people and the powerful people and the people like you, the people who will elevate your social status. Instead, go and find the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind and invite them in because they can't pay you back and then you will be rewarded in heaven. Because the way that dinner parties used to work in those days was that I would have a dinner party and I would invite the people along who, who I thought would help me get on in life and that, and that they would then invite me back and that would elevate my social status and it would all be reciprocated. Like we all like just worked together in our, in our little society and looked after each other, but all the people who couldn't reciprocate were not invited. And Jesus is saying, don't do it like that. And so while all these things are really, really awkward, they're all sitting there going, what are you doing, Jesus? Can't we just sit there, sit here and eat our meal in peace and make polite conversation? Couldn't we please talk about politics or something? This is the worst. So someone pipes up and have a look in verse 15. He's trying to, you know, make everything easier for everyone. He says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. He's saying, you know, guys, maybe we can't agree on exactly how to do feasts now, but at least we're all going to be together at God's great banquet in the sky. And then Jesus says, yeah, well, about that, let me tell you a story. And so things continue to be awkward. 
The story starts with a man and he's hosting a banquet. He's put on this big banquet and he's invited all these people to come along. And the way that the invitation system worked in those days is different to the way the invitation system works in our day. In our day, you send out a save the date, and then everyone hopefully saves the date. And then you send out the next invitation, and then you ask for RSVPs, and then people are like, yeah, I can come or I can't come. But hopefully they can come because they saved the date. Their system works kind of the other way around. You send, you send out the invitation and say, come along on this date, and everyone is expected to keep it free or to give their excuses at that point or the reasons that they can't turn up. And then once that invitation has gone out, the, the host begins to get the party ready. And so they make sure they've got enough food and all, the, all this kind of stuff. And then they, when it's all ready, then they send out their servants and say, come along. It's all begun. It's ready. The, the feast is ready for you. Come on in. It's like when you go to a wedding and uh, you go to the um, reception afterwards and everyone's standing around having drinks beforehand and the doors are closed to the reception venue. And then someone opens the door and says, come on in. You may now take your seats. He's saying that the feast is now ready. So this is definitely not the time to give your excuses because everything has been prepared. In those days, if you were going to have a feast with you know, two or four people, you would kill a chicken. If you were going to have a feast with five or so people, you'd kill a duck. If you're going to have a feast with like 75 people, you would kill a cow. And so if you know, you're, going, you're expecting 75 people to turn up and only five people turn up, well then everyone, um, everyone has shunned the owner, the, sorry, the, the banquet host, and they're going to be upset, and the cow is going to be upset. The only happy person is the duck. So this is not the time to be giving your RSVPs, but this is what happens in the story. Everyone is sending their RSVPs on the day. And they all give these terrible excuses. The first person says, I can't come because I just bought a field. I've got to go look at my field, which is stupid. Because I don't know how many of you guys have bought houses. Probably some of you have. But all of you would probably know if you're going to buy a house, make sure you look at it before you buy it. You know, you do all these things. You do the inspection and, and you, you, know, you make sure that the paperwork is worked out well. You know where the house is. You have the address and you make sure it you know, exists and it's not falling down. You do all that stuff before you buy the house. Then you don't go and look at it after and say, oh, look, that's what I bought. And, and in Jesus' day, that's what they do with fields. They knew those fields. They knew the history of the fields. They knew where every tree in the field was. So why you'd have to go and look at your field in the dark that you just bought, you wouldn't. It's a stupid excuse. Then the next person says, oh, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I've got to give them a test drive. Now, I don't know a lot about oxen buying, but I do know that you do your testing before you buy. I am terrible at buying cars. I am the worst car buyer I know. I cannot haggle for the life of me. The first car I bought, I turned up and I, I drove the car around and then I said to the guy, how much is it? He said, 8,000. I said, sounds good. And then I paid for it. Then the next time I bought a car, I was like, no, I'm going to haggle. I'm going to do this properly. So I went in and I said, how much is the car? And the guy was like, 15990 And I was like, oh, that's more than I want to spend. He's like, what's your upper limit? I said, 15000 He's like, okay, I can do that. I was like, no, I should have said some other number, some lower number. I don't know how to haggle, but 
I test drove the car. I may not know how to buy a car well, at least I know that you drive the car before you buy it because you make sure it's got wheels and an engine and stuff. Like, you don't want to turn up to your five yoke of oxen, that's ten oxen, and find out they don't have any legs. Then you'll be very disappointed. It's a terrible excuse. Then the last person says, oh, look, I can't come because I just got married. I have this theory that you shouldn't visit newlyweds unannounced because 50% of the time they're naked. And, uh, and this has been proved true in the early days of my marriage when an unexpected delivery man turned up and we wish he hadn't. Anyway, what this person does when they send out the invitation, at least they've said, look, you've got to be ready on this date. And even married people know how to put on their pants at the right time to go out to a party. It is a terrible excuse. So none of these excuses are good excuses. They're all just making things up, and they're all doing it to shame the banquet owner. They're all saying, look, we don't want anything to do with your feast. And we don't want anything to do with you. And so he gets angry when he hears this news. And he gets angry that no one is, is turning up to his party. And it can be really disappointing when no one turns up to your party. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. It's happened to me before. I know, it's a bit sad. I once organized an Oscar-watching party, and I invited all my friends. I bought a whole lot of food, and then I, I sat down, and no one turned up. It was just me and the nacho cheese Doritos, which isn't the worst thing in the world, because they're very nice. And then eventually, though, there was a knock at the door, and it was the girl I had a crush on. I was like, yes! And then we sat on the couch together, me and her and the nacho cheese Doritos. And then there was another knock at the door, and I was like, no! <laughs> and some more people turned up. But for a little while, they was like, I'm going to have a party on my own. This is the worst. And I thought about inviting all the, the lame and the lost, and, but I couldn't be bothered. I just wanted to eat my nacho cheese Doritos. Anyway. I don't know why I told that story, just to, so you could empathize with me. The host, he does things differently. He sends out his servant and says, you know what, I'm not going to be shamed by these people who reject me. I'm going to find those people who will not reject me. I'm going to bring them in. And so he goes looking for the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame, and he brings them in. And when still the, the place is not filled, He's like, go out and find more and compel them to come in. It's like, what do you mean compel them to come in? Why are you doing this? Are you finding people who can't walk and picking them up and putting them on your shoulder and dragging them in and saying, you go to the party now. The reason they're doing this is because in those days, like I said, it was a, um, a system where you would reciprocate. And these people, they knew that social etiquette would say, I cannot come to your party because I can't invite you to my own party. And he's saying, I don't care whether you can invite me back or not. I don't care whether you can repay me or not. This is not a party of repayments. This is grace. Come on in. You have nothing to bring, but I have everything to give. And so he invites people in to his party. And so the question that Jesus is saying, he's asking He's saying, are you making assumptions about who will be in the kingdom of God? Because all the people who were hearing this, they were making assumptions that they were going to be at God's great banquet in the sky, that they were God's 
chosen people. They were the ones uh, who had been picked by him millennia before and he'd given them their word, his word and given them his prophets and they were just waiting for him to send the Messiah and then with the Messiah they would enter into God's eternal kingdom. But now God has sent the Messiah in Jesus Christ. He has turned up and he says, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe and they have all chosen to reject him. They reject him because he eats and he drinks with gluttons and drunkards. They reject him because he heals on the Sabbath. They reject him because he doesn't fit into their expectations of what a Messiah should be like. They think that they're going to be in God's kingdom, but at the same time, they are rejecting God's invitation to them in Jesus. He's saying, do not make assumptions about who is going to be in the kingdom of God. And the same challenge Jesus can have for us today. He needs to say to us, do not make assumptions about who will be in the kingdom of God. We cannot make assumptions about ourselves, about our own standing with God. And I know that most of us here have grown up in the church. Most of us here have grown up being taught about Jesus. Most of us here know how to live a good Christian life. Most of us here know how to turn up to church and how to sing the songs and how to read the Bible. And most of us here know what it means to be a good Christian. And so we can look at the way we live and say, well, I'm fine. I got it sorted out. I'm definitely on Jesus' team. Do you, do you see how good a Christian I am? We can make assumptions about our standing with God. One of the things that I do is I ask people, I say, what do you think it means to be saved? And often I get the reply, well, you've got to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Which, in some sense, is true. That's the correct answer. But in another sense, that it's, it's not true. That's not the correct answer. You don't get saved by believing the right things. And when I say believing the right things, I'm talking about sometimes we think of belief as intellectual assent to a few theological facts. That we say, I theologically agree with the fact that God sent his son, Jesus, to die. That is true. And that he died for our sins. That is true. And that you can not be saved by your own good works, that's true. I believe that. I have all the right thoughts. But your right thoughts do not save you. Your right beliefs do not make you right with God. It's like if you and I both jumped out of a plane, which would be silly, but we might do it, and we have parachutes on. And I'm plummeting to the, towards the ground with you, at the same rate, 9.6 meters per second per second, is that correct? 9.8, thank you. I knew there'd be someone who would correct me. I was like 9.2, 9.6, 9. let's go 9.6. And I was wrong. Anyway, we're falling. We're probably gonna die unless we do something with our parachutes. And I know exactly how my parachute works. I know, you know, if I was smarter, I would know exactly, you know, what happens when I pull the cord. 
and what happens, you know, in the mechanics of the backpack. And I know, you know, what the chute is like and what the reserve chute is like. And I know how the, the wind and the air is going to flow into the chute and through the chute and around the chute. I know the mechanics. I know the physics. I know it all. I have all the correct knowledge. But if I do not pull the cord, I am going to die. You, on the other hand, might have no idea how a parachute works. The only thing you know is that you pull the cord and then something happens above you and then you are saved. Your belief does not save you. You pulling on the cord is what saves you. And the thing that makes us right with God is not our correct beliefs. It's not our correct behavior. It's not our correct community. The only thing that makes us right is that if we put all our trust in Jesus Christ as the man who is God who died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins and rose again. That is the only thing that will save us. We cannot make assumptions about where we are in the kingdom of God. We have to say, everything I am trusts in Jesus. Jesus is my parachute. Otherwise, I will plummet into the holiness of God, and I cannot survive that. So you might be saying, well, how do I know then? How do I know that it's not just a set of ideas, right ideas, intellectual assent to things? How do I know that I'm actually saved? How do I know that I'm actually trusting in Jesus? Well, you've got to check your heart. You've got to say, what am I trusting in? If I ask you the question, how do you know that you are okay with God, what is your answer? If your answer is, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Or I believe the Bible. I don't do bad stuff. I feel like God loves me then maybe you're making assumptions. But if your answer is Jesus, the cross, it's all I got. If that's your answer, if all you are relying on is the grace of God in Jesus, then you know that you are safe because your salvation is is about knowing that before God you are blind, you are lame, you are broken, you have nothing to offer. The only thing you have to rely on is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So check your heart and say, Jesus, I want you and only you and let everything else fall away. May I just trust in you. Do not make assumptions about who will be in the kingdom of God. Put your trust in Jesus. The second half to this, though, is that we should not make assumptions about those others who could be or should be in the kingdom of God. And this means all these other people who could be invited in. We don't make assumptions about who is the right person for God's kingdom and who is the wrong person for God's kingdom. Now, since uh, the new Eastland has been built, 
Eastland Shopping Centre, I get uh, really uh, excited about going there because I, th I think it's nice. I really like the high roofs and all the, the nice shiny floors and I really like the new shops. I like eating a Mr. Papadopoulos at the Jimmy Grant's. You should go there. It's good. I like the reclining seats at Hoyt's. In fact, I'm going to go recline in them tonight after this service. I'm very excited. I really like the new Eastland, but there is one thing I don't like about the new Eastland and that's the people. I don't like the people there. If there were less people or no people, I would enjoy it a lot more. See, when you get to Eastland, you've probably seen this. This is what happens for me. I walk in, I often catch a train because I don't want to park, and so I walk in the, the middle bit, and then the first thing I see is that on the, the grass outside the front, there are the youths. And youths, I love youths when they're well-behaved church youths, but when they're the youths that look like they're going to stab you, I don't like them so much. And so I'm like, please don't stab me. I would love to youth pastor you, but you'll probably stab me. So then I keep going, and I'm like, I'll try and avoid them. And then I get on the escalators to head down to the bowels of Eastland, and as I'm heading down, you know, there's like this couple that's in front of me, and they're stuck on the escalator, and they're filling up the whole thing, and they're pashing. I'm like, why are you so close to me? Why are you snogging? There's nothing that exciting about a, a shopping center that you should kiss this much. I do not want to see your tongue go in her mouth and out her ear. That is disgusting. Why are you doing this? But then eventually I get off the escalator, and I'm like, quick, got to go to JB, because I got to pick up the next season of Parks and Recreation. So I walk quickly until I get stuck behind some old people, and they're like an old couple. One of them is in like the thing and the other one is walking and they just walk wide enough apart that I can't overtake them at all and then I get stuck in the middle of this you know coffee shop that's in the middle of everywhere I'm like what is going on here but then eventually I get there but suddenly there's this opening of a new shop and everyone is standing around there and none of them look like me and they were like we love this new shop I'm like I don't understand this new shop you're from some country that I don't know where you are from why are you here and then my inner bigot comes out I'm like please get out of my way I just want to go to JB and then I get to JB and I get my DVD and then I'm in the line and in front of me there's a whiny seven-year-old and behind me there's a screaming toddler I'm like why are there people here <laughs> and then eventually I make it out and I'm like I am released until I see there's this weird man sitting on the side who looks like he's got a few screws loose and he's going to try and talk to me and I'm like please don't talk to me please don't talk to me please you are as scary as the youths and then I and then finally I get away and I think if only everyone there was just like me it would be great that would be the perfect shopping experience. But there are different people at the shops, all these different people, because Eastland wants all these different people there, because they want all these different people's money. And everyone, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter how rich you are or poor you are, um, whatever you look like, anybody has money to spend. Everybody needs food and everybody wants clothes and everybody likes going to JB Hi-Fi and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Everybody wants to go and spend money at the shops and, JB, uh, and Eastland wants everyone doing that. And so we have this diverse group of people. And so then we get to our church and we look around our church and our church is not nearly as diverse as our shopping center. And the question is, why is the diversity not the same? Why do most of us have the same background, have the same kind of upbringing, have about the same socioeconomic level? Why is this going on? And I think one of the reasons is that the reason why I like shopping at Eastland with all the people who are just like me is the same with church. I like going to church with all the people who are just like me. 
But the challenge in this passage is that all people are invited. All people are being invited to God's kingdom, rich or poor. Whoever will accept God's invitation is invited. Whether you are healthy or not, whether you have everything together or not, whether you are physically able or not, whether you grew up in Australia or grew up in 16 different countries, everybody is welcome in God's kingdom. And so our church should be a reflection of the diversity of our community. We should be seeking to invite all sorts of people into God's kingdom. And part of that will be just about building relationships with people who are different from us. Finding the people who are the poor and the sick and the broken and the lonely and saying, I will be your friend because God has been mine. And I will offer to you the best thing I have to offer, and that is the love of Jesus. Because if God is inviting everyone into his kingdom, we need to be doing the same thing. Do not make assumptions about who it is who should be in God's kingdom. None of us should be in God's kingdom. But all of us can be in God's kingdom if we realize that we are these people who cannot repay God. But the invitation to his banquet is out of grace. That we have nothing to offer and so no one else has anything to offer either. It's all done for us in Jesus. Will we accept his invitation? Will we pass on his invitation? If you are not a Christian, the challenge for you tonight is this. You are being invited into God's kingdom. And you don't have to give him anything to be part of his family, to be accepted into heaven. He's done everything for you in his son, Jesus. Jesus died and rose again to give you forgiveness, to give you new life. All you need to do is say, I will trust in Jesus. I bring nothing. And if you are a Christian, the challenge for you is do not make assumptions about where you fit in God's kingdom. Instead of making assumptions, put your trust in Jesus. Say, I do not presume to think that I deserve to be here. All I put my hope in is that Jesus died and rose again for me. He is my parachute. He is my life. And then when you are doing that, then go out and find the people who are different from you. Find the people who God loves as much as he loves you and invite them in so that our community will reflect our community and that all people can be part of God's kingdom. I'm going to uh, pray for us, and then after this, we're going to watch uh, a video to close out the service. And in this video, it's just a time for us to reflect uh, on the words of this song. It's an old hymn. Some of you will know it. It's not a particularly exciting video. It's just a guy with a guitar and some words. But I want you to watch this video, and I want you to say, is this my heart? Am I putting all my trust in Jesus? Do I bring nothing in my hands but simply to Jesus' cross do I cling. I'm going to pray, uh, then we're going to reflect, and then we will be finished with the service. I will pray. Lord God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus 
that he came as an invitation to all of us to say the kingdom of God is near and that he calls all of us to repent and to believe in him. I pray that you will forgive us for our assumptions, for our assumptions that we can be good enough for you, that our religiousness will make us right, that our intellectual assent would make us okay, that our good works would make us acceptable. Please help us not to make assumptions, but only to put our trust in Jesus. I pray, God, that you will help us to be a church that is diverse, that reflects the diverseness of your kingdom, so that when people see us, they say, even I am welcome in God's family. I pray that we will all know your invitation, we'll accept your invitation, we'll pass on your invitation and say, the kingdom is ready. Would you come on in? Amen.